Community Church, we're so glad you're with us this morning. Um, would you stand with us if you're able as we start worship today?
You are our glorious God, and Lord, you are our peace. You bring light and love into the darkness, and oh, how we need you and your pure light in these darkening days. Forgive us, Father, for failing to stand strong for you and your statutes, for our complacency and compliance concerning the spiritual, ethical, and moral erosion of our country. Hear our silent confession. Thank you that when we confess and repent, you forgive our sin. Thank you, Father, for our church family and the opportunities to grow through Steve's sermons, through life groups, through after-service conversations, and Bible study classes. Fill us with a hunger and thirst for truth to know you more and more. Draw us into daily reading of our Bibles and daily prayer. Father, often we do not know what we ought to pray, but help us to hear the Holy Spirit and allow him to pray through us on behalf of our friends, family, nation leaders, and of course the children of our nation. I pray we do not become overwhelmed by the news where it seems like evil is winning the day, but rather may we be all the more in prayer because, God, you said in this world we would have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Prayer and the sword of the Spirit, God's word, are our weapons to fight the spiritual battle that we sense is raging. Lord, hear our silent prayer. Bless us now with ears to hear and hearts to receive today's teaching from Pastor Steve Murray, whom we welcome back from a well-earned time of refreshment. In the merciful name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning, La Jolla Community Church. Hope everybody is doing well on this wonderful Sunday morning. Wow, that came out weird. My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the Director of Youth Ministries here at La Jolla Community Church, and I want to welcome you all to our church this Sunday. On your way in, you should have received one of our wonderful, fancy little bulletins designed by our amazing media director, Josh. And if you notice, you may not notice, right in the middle, there's a perfect little perforation. And if you tear it right in half, you notice this top half comes off. Our hope and our prayer is that you would take this top half home and you would invite somebody to church. You would let them know about some of the wonderful ministries going on here at La Jolla Community Church. And you use this card to open a conversation, maybe start a conversation with somebody that you wouldn't talk to before. Uh, a little quick announcement about this little top half. You'll notice on the back side, it mentions our congregational, congregational meeting with a little QR code on here where you can find out a little bit more information. Next week, instead of conversations, right after our brunch outside, we're going to come back in here and our, the LJCC Board of Trustees is going to lead us in our annual uh, congregational meeting. So if you'd like to come in here after the brunch and just get to know about the mission of LJCC and some of the wonderful things going on here, please take a moment and join us next week in lieu of conversations for our congregational meeting. 
the bottom half of that card. This is for you here during the service. Promise I won't be upset if you're filling it out while I'm doing announcements here. But this first card says get connected with us. This is how we at La Jolla Community Church get you plugged in and involved in some of the awesome ministries that we have going on here. Maybe you want to be part of our children's ministry. We just had a super, super awesome family fun night earlier this week. If you want to get involved in some of those really fun ministries, please let us know how we can get you connected. Take a moment, fill out this card so we can get you plugged in. And immediately on the other side of this, that card, it says, let us pray for you. This is how we at La Jolla Community Church can pray over you. We believe in the power of prayer. We have a dedicated team of prayer warriors that every week pray over these individual cards that get turned in. And we also have a prayer team available after the service. If you would like to get a little prayer, write it down on a card. Let us know how we can pray for you. Let us know how we can support you and your family. Maybe you've got a praise report. Something wonderful happened this week. More and more often, the, the praise reports get fewer and far between. So if you've got something wonderful to praise about, please let us know. I would love, love, love to join you in praising God and the amazing things that are going on in your life. Or maybe you just want to pray for something difficult going on this week. We've had a lot of rough things happen in our country this last week. If you want to pray for personal things, grand things, there's nothing too big or too small that we could pray for. So please take a moment, fill out that prayer and connect card, and then you can turn that in along with your offering envelope, which is directly in front of you in the seat back. You can turn those in on your way out the door. There's a box mounted on the wall here in the sanctuary as well as in the Welcome Center. Well, again, thank you all so much for joining us. We're super excited uh, to have you here this morning. And with that, I'm going to ask Pastor Steve to lead us in a message. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Brian. Well, well, Steve, thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, which presents a bit of a challenge. How do you, how do you talk about that? You say, hey, happy Memorial Day weekend. It's kind of a, it's a bit tricky, right? To say happy Memorial Day weekend is, is, is to sort of almost be disrespectful to the fact that Memorial Day is about remembering people who've given their lives. So on one hand, Memorial Day is a tragic, heartbreaking day uh, for people who are remembering loved ones who uh, made that ultimate sacrifice. Uh, Janet and I were visiting our kids, and uh, uh, our youngest daughter, Megan, and, and her husband, Nick, are living in Oxford for this year. And uh, so Megan was, she has access to all these colleges, you know, so you can go actually into them and walk around. They're beautiful. And every one of them has a plaque. And every time over the years I've ever gone in there, I, I always hesitate to read the plaque because it always makes me cry. Because you read these, these long lists of names and you realize every name I'm reading on this list is probably between 18 and 22 or the professors who, from the Oxford colleges, served in World War I and World War II. Um, so Memorial Day evokes deep things in us, right? If you know somebody, uh, immediate you know, somebody, uh, an uncle, a father, grandfather, if you have friends and relatives who uh, have relatives that uh, grieve today, your heart grieves with them. On the other hand, it's happy Memorial Day because somebody was willing to sacrifice for us. No, none of us would be here today but for somebody sacrificing for us. Somebody being willing to lay down their life on our behalf. Now maybe they didn't plan on doing that, but when the moment came, they were willing to do it. Uh, so Memorial Day is about military sacrifice, but really the larger context for that is the everyday ongoing sacrifice that people make because they care. And some people uh, think of parenthood as, wow, it's going to be so wonderful. I'll have these cute kids. They'll be really well-behaved. And then they turn four, and you go, what happened? Somebody stole my child, and now I have this little uh, rascal running around making chaos. 
uh, and you realize, oh my gosh, I signed up for long haul sacrifice. Uh, and, and so there's all kinds of parents and grandparents around the country, uh, maybe you're one of them, who have had kids and grandkids come back to be with you so that you could continue to sacrifice for them. So you see where this goes, right? Uh, it's a higher calling to do something that's beyond our capacity. Because all of us have a capacity for safety and security, not sacrifice and suffering. Those songs we just sang about not being afraid in spite of all the challenges, the first song we sang, It Is Well With My Soul, tells the story of the Spafford family, a wealthy Chicago businessman whose wife took the kids to England on the Lahav, and he was going to join them, and he gets a telegram, the kids are lost, the, the ship sank, it's just me. And he, he goes out uh, to, uh, on the next possible ship, to meet his wife in London, and, and when he gets to the place where that horrible accident happened, he asked the captain to tell him, and once he was there, he opened up the book of Lamentations and started pouring out his heart with grief and sorrow. And then he saw that one little bit, that tiny little bit in the midst of the Lamentation, and he said, it is, but the Lord is with me, it is well with my soul. And he turned that in, in, in intention, you know, uh, no, not, not planned uh, horrible tragedy into something very profoundly constructive, he and his wife started to, as part of their grief and loss, they, they, they said, let's just travel, get a new perspective. And while they were traveling, they were in then Ottoman-controlled Israel. Jerusalem was run by the Ottomans, um, the Turks, and, and, and it was a mess because the Ottomans had run out of steam and everything was bad in that area. And they said, I wonder if we can do something while we're here. And that little something created something else, became something else, came a bigger, became a bigger version of that. They got big pushback. Who do you think you are coming in here? But then the people realized, actually, you've come here to feed people, to help people, to create orphanages, hospitals, schools. And it, and it became so attractive that the Ottoman Empire said, we, we like you being here. And they bought a Pasha's uh, estate. Uh, it's now called the American Colony Hotel. <laughs> It's the only related chateau property in the Mideast, I think. Uh, but they, they, they created a multi-generational effort to, to live sacrificially and to come alongside people who are suffering deeply. So when we think about Memorial Day, there's a very specific reason for this specific day, but there's a much larger context that, we, that we're going to talk about today. Um, because we've been talking about the Jesus movement. Following Easter, we say, well, so what? What happens? Well, a, a movement is born. It's not just a new out of the blue movement. It's been continuous since God called Abram to trust in him and to build a family and a tribe and a nation to bless all nations through his obedience and his trust. And now the culmination of that is God himself comes into the world, taking the sins of the world upon himself to the point that he allowed himself to be killed. He's crucified, but he didn't remain in the grave. On the third day he rose again. He appeared uh, in ways that were... Um, obviously uh, convincing to a lot of people. And immediately there was conflict. He ascends into heaven, he releases his Holy Spirit, we'll celebrate Pentecost next Sunday, and this movement is born. And so when you read the Gospels, you're seeing what, what's, what God is teeing up for that movement. When you read the book of Acts, you're seeing the movement rolling out. And then all those letters are the, inherent, and the, the inevitable and inherent conflicts that came with that movement. So do you, see, do you see what's going on here? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but, but, but be sure of this, I am with you. My shalom will be with you. And so this is the conundrum in which we live. 
Every day is a gift that we celebrate, and yet every day is another opportunity for deep heartbreak and heartache. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? You've, you've, you've experienced this in your life, and maybe you're experiencing it deeply right now, and you think, don't even talk to me about hope and, and peace and shalom, because right now my heart is heavy, and I don't believe there's a God who cares. Um, this is the case for many people in our world. They just don't want to hear because they don't believe it. In fact, they get angry about it, or it's so threatening, they have to respond in ways that uh, are really uncomfortable. So that's what we're going to talk about. This Jesus movement really is a movement of several things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. One, it's a movement equipping every generation to walk with God. All generations matter in this movement. It's a life-giving movement of hospitality, generosity, uh, justice, and compassion. It, it thrives, as all healthy movements do, on dynamic structure. They had to figure out how to, how to sustain and support this movement. All movements need some structure. When movements die, they have too much structure. It's called a bureaucracy. A movement serves its constituency. A bureaucracy serves itself. But we see in, in a healthy movement that continues to reinvent itself, not moving from its original mission, but re-energizing and refocusing and reframing that mission uh, with dynamic structure and creative innovation. And then we saw that it's multicultural. God is above every culture, but God works through any culture. No culture is immune to the gospel. No culture, no person is exempt from the gospel. But all this comes at a cost, and that's what we're talking about today. The Jesus movement anticipates pushback and persecution. This is not some shocking surprise. It was anticipated. Jesus taught that it would be inevitable. In fact, he says um, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That was a sobering moment when he said this. It was one thing to say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You go, oh, wow, an inheritance. I, you got my attention. Then to say, and by the way, this is the inevitable, anticipated pushback and even persecution that you can expect. Now we see already that the world is in conflict. So people are, are doing horrible things to each other regardless of what their faith is or isn't. So we're used to that. In a sense, we get used to that fact that there's injustice and, and violence happening um, everywhere, in this city, in this county, in this country, and around the world. We know it. We see it every day. We see examples of it, and it's heartbreaking to us. And it's especially heartbreaking uh, and bewildering and disorienting when it's, it's, it's happening to us. But specifically, we're talking about persecution directed at someone because of their identification with Jesus Christ. It's a subset of the, of the inevitable conflict and, uh, and, and terror that pervades our world. Uh, I assume you lock doors. Whatever door you own, you lock it the door of your car, the door of your house. Uh, I assume that you are nervous when you're in a dark place that's unfamiliar to you and you don't know where you're going. Uh, and if you saw a group of, of people that look scared of you walking towards you, would you ask them for help or would you run? In some countries, you see a policeman and you run for help. Hey, would you help me? In some countries, if you see a policeman, you run from them to get help. So this is the world we live in, but in the midst of that, there's a particular kind of persecution 
specifically directed at people because of their identification with Jesus Christ. Do you know that there are more people, literally more people being persecuted today than ever before in history? Shocking to think about that. We tend to think of persecution as a first century phenomenon. Maybe second, maybe third, but once, you know, um, once Constantine comes in, it's all good because now the, the, the Christian thing is official. We're good with it, and yet it, it, it persists. Uh, in the city of Oxford, <laughs> there is a plaque in the middle of the road and then a, a, another statue a little bit further along that talks about a day in, in 1555 when three men, two men, and then six months later, a third man, uh, Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer, were burned at the stake. They were bishops of the Church of England under Henry VIII. Henry VIII leaves the, church, leaves the Catholic Church, establishes what becomes the Church of England, and these guys are having misgivings about it, thinking that was not necessarily a great idea, but it's a good idea, but the way it happened was a bad idea. So they're working through all this stuff. Meanwhile, Mary, Bloody Mary, the daughter of King Henry VIII, eventually comes back into power. And now they've resolved the fact that, you know, this, this Reformation is really a good thing. It's, it's better than what we were doing. Mary says, that's a really bad idea. And unless you recant, uh, it will not go well for you. And they, all three of them said, I, I can recant. I believe this is true. I'm not saying it's a different church. I'm saying the church is now in a better place. Uh, and they were burned at the stake. Persecuted by a Christian. Uh, I, I, on, a flight, uh, on a flight over, I thought, oh, I'll watch a movie. I, I, I teed up uh, the movie Belfast. I, in the first five minutes, I'm thinking, I, I, I was so upset I couldn't watch this movie. Uh, from my family's history there, and one of the ironies of that movie is that uh, one of my uncles, uh, with a good Irish name, Seamus, James, Though born in Southern Ireland, and my grandfather was a part of the original Irish Republican Army when they were not terrorists, he then becomes the American consul, consular officer running the consulate in Belfast. So here's a guy who's an American citizen who grew up in Southern Ireland, now running the, the American consulate in Northern Ireland, and talking about the nuttiness of that whole situation. I couldn't watch this. I mean, Christians wounding and killing and harassing Christians. So persecution is a phenomenon directed at somebody because of their identity in Christ. It might be done by a fellow Christian, but it's always focused on the fact that you're a catty dog or you're a proddy dog. When, when, when my grandparents were small, if you were on the street, somebody would stop you and say, are you a catty dog or are you a proddy dog? And you better be very careful what you said in response. So persecution includes insult, harassment, discrimination, assault, extortion, imprisonment, exile, and murder. In the Ottoman Empire, if you were a Jew or a Christian, they'd allow you to remain as long as you paid a heavy, heavy tax. This continues to this day. If you're in a Muslim country and you are a follower of Jesus, you pay a, an oppressive tax for the privilege of living in their midst. And if, you, and if you err too far in the direction of talking about your faith or influencing others, you and they are in great danger. So, uh, Paul reminds his protege Timothy that following Jesus in this world is costly. So Paul writes it in his second letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor in Ephesus, the second most powerful city in the Roman Empire and definitely a pagan city given to supernatural and uh, superstitious behaviors and, and idolatry. In fact, part of the economy was built on, on creating silver um, versions of, of the reigning goddess. 
He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, that's certainly motivating news. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate that, you know. Can't wait to get up tomorrow and face a new day, you know. And by the way, thank you for sending me here as your protege to be the pastor of these people. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished in the kingdom of God, it sounds like. Why are the godly persecuted? Well, it, because it seems counterintuitive. Don't we want more godly people? Wouldn't you say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. In fact, Peter in his letter, first letter of 1 Peter says, hey, if you're, you will be persecuted uh, and there'll be pushback for your faith, live such incredible lives that people say, I, 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 I want what you have. And he said, if you do something that is, is deserving of punishment, don't count that as persecution. You might be a Christian if you've done something bad. If you're a Christian protesting abortion, that's one thing. If you're a Christian blowing up abortion clinics, you're a criminal. And so Peter makes that distinction. You're gonna live a, if you're going to live a life in Christ, you'll be persecuted. And we're going to talk a little bit about why. Because if you live for Christ, you'll get pushed back from people offended by Jesus' teaching. Now, I have been offended, and as have you, by people who espouse Christ. I've been offended by people who are annoying and obnoxious people in the name of Jesus. We'd be silly if we didn't recognize that. There are people who do nutty, crazy, offensive things in the name of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you cringe when you hear the things they say uh, and the things that they do. But people aren't offended by, by people... Uh, just, just people who are being offensive, they're also offended by the fact that as graciously as you say it, as kindly as you present it, there are people who are going to resent the fact that you're representing Jesus and talking about the fact that Jesus might have something to say about your life. A Christ follower is a living rebuke to evil. This is inherent to the, the identity, the DNA of this Christian movement, this Jesus movement. I don't even like to use the word Christian because it has too many cultural uh, things attached to it. I, I, I tend to talk more about being a Christ follower, a person who, who believes and follows Jesus. Because if you say you're a Christian, uh, that has so much other distracting content and content that you're talking to somebody who's not one of those, they go, I don't know, that would be betrayal if I became a Christian. But a Christ follower is a living rebuke to evil because we believe in justice on God's terms. We believe in righteousness on God's terms. We don't always practice it, but we believe in it and aspire to it. Again, you, you, you look at the social movements in the world, and, and oftentimes you say it was, it was followers of Jesus who created those social movements, whether it's child labor laws or slavery. Yeah, there were Christians who had slaves, but there were a lot, a lot more Christians who were anti-slavery, who were representing women, who were representing the poor and the oppressed. Uh, who uh, the, the oldest orphanage we know about is in a small square in Florence. And when you wanted to give up this baby, you'd ring the bell and put the baby on this wheel, and the wheel would turn, and the nuns would take it without actually asking anything about you. They would just say, give me the kid. Mother Teresa did this at Harvard, Harvard Yard. She said, listen, if you don't want babies, give them to me, and the place jumped to their feet in applause. Now, I'm not talking about the rights of women. I'm talking about the rights of people to survive. This is one of the justice issues that drove Christians from the very beginning to the point that early on in the Roman regime when they noticed all these Christians, they were saying, these people care about the people we could care less about. Our poor, our maimed, our infirm. These people care about these people more than we do. Who are these people? 
It was still problematic for the Romans, but they said, these people have a whole different view of justice than we do. So God's word reveals a kingdom and power that stands above this world. But the easiest thing is to shoot the messenger, right? We all need Jesus, but we resist his love. Why? Well, our fear and our pride hardens our hearts. Individuals, governments, despots, rulers. There's a perversity about this. When we, when we, when we proclaim that God alone deserves our allegiance, that, that, that ruffles our feathers. Right now, the patriarch of Russia is justifying everything that Putin is doing in Ukraine. He has been ostracized by the rest of the Eastern Orthodox churches. They're saying, this is abominable what you're saying, what you're doing, Kirill. So Patriarch Kirill is the number one proponent of Putin's regime and all he's doing. It's perverse. It's absolutely perverse at its core. You cannot, you cannot make a coherent <laughs> case for it. And there's all kinds of elements in this conflict, but that's not the solution, right? Now, here you have somebody who's doing this. Obviously, his primary allegiance is to Putin, not to Christ. Now, if you think this is judgmental, I just invite you to read Scripture and read history and wrestle with this a bit. It's an observation I'm making. It, it does not wash. It does not pass muster. Queen Mary might have had a very bad day. It didn't justify what she did. English Protestants and Irish Catholics doing what they've done to each other, there's absolutely no justification for it. So we all need Jesus, but we resist his love because fear and, and, and pride harden our hearts to the point that we make cases for things that make no sense whatsoever. As one theologian uh, who influenced me deeply uh, said, we'd rather be right than love. No matter how wrong that right is, stick with it. And so evil seeks to co-opt God's power because it craves legitimacy and authority it can't possess. Think about that. When people talk about the church as evil sometimes, they say, see, see the church is just as screwed up as the rest of the world is. Right. Why? Because people do evil things hiding behind the legitimacy of the church, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's you know, praying on children, or whether it's doing any number of kinds of things. There's a, a great way to hide is to hide out in the open behind a religious facade. And even, even as we call out those situations, we don't need, we don't need to say, well, therefore, it, it makes the gospel bogus. It says, this is how we do the gospel. This is how I do the gospel, and I see it in me. I learn to confess and repent in me. I learn to take the log out of my own eye before I look for the splitter of somebody else's. But then at the same time, I have to call out sin wherever I see it. You know, of course, that legally, my responsibility is to, is to call out abuse of children. I guess I could rebel against that, but I believe in it. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some things I'm really ashamed of, I'm abusing a child, my, my responsibility as a pastor and a, and a leader is to say, I want to help you deal with that. Primarily, I'm going to start with a child and help that child avoid what you're doing that job. And I, I am responsible for reporting this person to the authorities. Why would I do that? You're a fellow, fellow, maybe a fellow believer in Jesus. Because I'm honoring the structures in which we live. I'm honoring the authority in which I live, and it's honorable authority. It's not coercive. And then I'm going to love and care for this person. One of the greatest letters you can ever read is Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. He calls out evil in our culture, but he doesn't do it in a way that is, again, throwing bombs or assassinating people. He's saying, I'm willing to take the the, 
the penalty of calling it out. I'm in jail because I believe in the authority of, of law. I just believe that this is a very evil, wrong law. So by me sitting here in jail writing this letter, I'm calling out the fact that this is a bogus law. So we don't roll over in the face of evil, and we don't comply with it. What we do is we say, how do I honor the structures and challenge them at the same time? And that always invites persecution. It's scary to think about being a person in the South in the 60s. A John Perkins, a dear man I met, was, was standing as, a, as an 11-year-old kid next to his brother who came back as a hero from World War II. He's standing in line in Jackson, Mississippi, waiting to go into a theater. And there's so many people waiting on the sidewalk. And a, a cop is walking down the sidewalk, and he sees John Perkins' brother. He said, get out of my way. And he calls him a very disrespectful name. And the brother said, no, I just came back from the war defending uh, this, this country, and I don't need to step off the sidewalk for anybody, with which he shot him and killed him. Uh, John Perkins was so mad, he, he vowed to, to get revenge, and he also vowed to never, ever uh, trust a white person, and he vowed to get out of the South. He came to L.A. when he was, when he was an adult with Vera May. Uh, he was working, had a great job in L.A., and... Um, uh, his little kids go to a neighborhood gathering of children, and it's an outreach for kids. The little kids come home and say, Dad, uh, I, I want to know more about Jesus. And John Perkins is like, what? Next thing you know, John Perkins has become a follower of Jesus, a leader among men. He starts noticing all these broken men from the South hanging out in L.A., and he goes, whoa, the South, I got away from the South, but the South didn't get away from me. So he starts ministering to all these men. And at one point, God says, John, you and Vera May need to go back. He moved back to the South, and in that tumult of the, of, the, of the late 60s, he stood for Christ with other Christians to name the evil in their midst. He was beaten mercilessly and abused horribly by law enforcement. Uh, he, he persevered, and, and John Perkins today is one of the, one of the you ask any, any Christian leader in America what they think of John Perkins, and they'll say, oh my gosh, he's a saint. I wish you could meet him. He moved. He came to Pasadena, came back to Pasadena, and did an amazing ministry. He claimed one street in Pasadena as his street. He moved in next door to a crack house, uh, and it was transformational. And he, then he moved back to the south now. But he, he's um, he's an amazing example of what it looks like to f experience persecution and to respond to it. See, everyone is made in God's image, but sin defaces the image of God in us. And Christ alone restores us. And that inevitably puts us in conflict with the powers that be. We fight not against you know, powers and principalities that we can see. We, we fight against powers and principalities in the high places that influence people. And so therefore, we proclaim God's glory among the nations. We, we join the psalmist in Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, small g. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So we proclaim the good news that Jesus is Messiah, is Savior, and Lord because it's true news. So true that we cannot deny it. So true that we get scared in the face of pushback and persecution, but so true that we have to say, I will not deny it. I cannot deny it. It calls us to confront evil, injustice, dishonesty, abusive power, and idolatry in us and around us. Why are we so timid about that? It seems like the wackier, most dysfunctional people are the ones doing it the loudest. Crazy people who don't represent us are doing things in places that just make us cringe and say, I don't want to identify with this. We need more people who are, who are thinking more coherently who have higher levels of EQ to say, I know what I want to do. I want to step up and face these and, and, and confront these issues in ways that are appropriate and effective. I don't want to become part of the problem. I want to become part of the solution. I don't want to create more heat. I want to create more light. This is the challenge of us, but it's too hard. Why are not more capable people running for political office? Because the wacky people own it on both sides of the aisle, so I, 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 there's no room for me there. It's like the last person willing to do it gets, gets elected, it seems like, these days. If you're complaining about that, then what are you doing to influence the outcome? I ask myself that, even as I ask you that. If the gospel transcends cultures and ideologies, any effort to hijack God's sovereignty should respond, uh, should resonate in us as a response to, to step up and say, whoa, whoa, that's not who we are. That's not what we're about. What's happened in a lot of parts of our church in America is we've, conf- we've just kind of rolled over for the culture. Whatever the culture likes, we like. We accept whatever the culture says is normative. Uh, right now there's a big crisis in mega churches. Mega churches, uh, many mega churches, especially trying to put their arms around the, the culture, are afraid to say what their theology is. And it's become laughable now because somebody will say to a high-profile pastor, what do you think about these issues? And they'll say partially true theology. They'll say, uh, God loves us. God accepts all of us. Mm. So what do you think about this, 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 and this? Well, you know, God loves us and God accepts us. Well, thank you, Joel. You've said that 10 times. We're on a national interview TV show. Would you please tell us what you really believe? Or Jude, this guy who runs a church with you know, um, Justin Bieber and all these people in LA. Fantastic ministry, except that uh, it becomes chameleon-like. After a while you go, I don't even understand what you believe. You won't say what you believe. And I know what's, tri- what's going on. They want to be able to engage with the culture. At some point, we can't engage with the culture without declaring who we are in the culture. Not obnoxiously, not offensively, with humility and grace. And at the same time, the risk of being not misunderstood, but actually understood and therefore dismissed. I'm not saying we volunteer to be martyrs. We, become, we make ourselves toxic. I'm saying there's a toxicity, a toxicity projected onto followers of Jesus that we just have to own. This was true in the first century, the second, the third, everyone, every century since then. Our world is in conflict with God, loved by God but resisting Him. As a, as a Christmas carol says, in sin and error pining, Hining is enduring and waiting for something better to happen. The kingdom of God is the hope of the world and every person in it. So do we dare declare for him? 
we're so afraid of being disliked or disagreed with. But you know what would be horrible? If, if somebody really came alive in Christ and came up to any of us sometime and said, hey, how come you never told me about this? Well, I didn't want you not to like me. Wait, you're willing to let me walk in sin and error, pining, and you wouldn't be straight with me? See, I'd rather hear that person come back and say, hey, remember how I cussed you out and told you to get the heck out of my life because you kept reminding me of what was right and, not, and, 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 and wrong? You were very kind, you are very gentle, you are very respectful, but I didn't, I resented you, and I made you know it. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I just want to thank you because that planted a seed in me that God has finally harvested, and I'm here to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you are faithful to me. Because even though I'm on outwardly, I told you to go to hell, I knew that you were right, and you were so gracious in it, it made me even more mad. You weren't smug. You were just secure in the fact that your love for me was unassailable. It didn't matter what I did. You were going to love me and, and welcome me into your life. And now that I know Christ, I want to be what you were for me. You see, it, it, you can't be vindicated every day right up front. Oftentimes, our vindication is delayed. And it's not that they come back to us and we say, see, I was right, you were wrong. Or if they say, you were right, I was wrong. We, we demur. We say, you know, isn't it neat that we both know that God is right and he loves us and accepts us? This is powerful, powerful, powerful. Unapplied, unapplied, unapplied. Because it's costly, it's scary, it's socially unacceptable, and we so much want to be socially accepted. We do not baptize a lack of EQ and call that spirituality. We look at our EQ and say, where do I need to grow and deepen so I can actually love people and, and be with people in a way that isn't bizarre? But at some point, I have to realize, too, you can be fully, fully mature and still realize that you're being rejected because of some things that you cannot compromise. And so God's powerful love equips and prepares us to proclaim and teach and demonstrate his gospel. Um, Paul reminds us that the gospel requires no embellishment, no coercion, uh, or editing. He says this uh, in his second letter to the Corinthians. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And then John uh, tells us this in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In the first century, Caesar was called Lord and Son of God. Did you know that? Part of Caesar's title was he's the son of God and he's called Lord. And that was part of the big deal in the Roman Empire that you recognized his lordship. You worshiped the state. Now the state was fine with you, you know, having any number of crazy beliefs as long as you worshiped Caesar as Lord. If, now here's the crazy thing. It's funny for us to think about it in the way we use the word. If you didn't do that, you were called an atheist. So think about this. The early Christians were seen as atheists to the Roman 
regime. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in Caesar. They're atheists. Can you imagine having somebody say to Paul, hey, how long have you been an atheist? Imagine this conversation with Paul and the Roman authorities. The accused will state his name. Uh, I am known as Saul of Tarsus and Paul, apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. You, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, are being charged with treason and blasphemy for denying Caesar's deity and lordship. I, and he said, Paul says, I confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. Do you deny writing a letter to people here in Rome, urging them to atheism and insulting Caesar? Did you not write these words in your letter? And I quote, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul says, yes, I wrote these words. I'm a Roman citizen. And I pray every Roman will embrace them. Though I stand before you in chains, yet I am a free man. I pray you also would be free in Christ. Can you imagine that? That's a, that's a realistic construction of Paul's words in the face of uh, the Roman Empire. I'm a citizen. I, I claim it. I'm thankful for it. Um, but <laughs> I worship the real Lord, who is the Son of God. It makes it possible for me to do what I do and for you to do what you do. So from the first century to this century, confessing Christ has risked pushback and persecution. Though often discouraged, Paul was never defeated. Why? Because he understood the true nature of things. Do we understand the true nature of things? He says it in Colossians chapter 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, who is supreme over all authorities, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. I, I wish I could unpack more of this for you, but this, he's using Roman language here. He's saying Christ has triumphed. We're in his victory parade. It, it, it dwarfs the Roman victory parade. And so Jesus met pushback when he was proclaiming and teaching and demonstrating his kingdom. Jesus, perfect, all God, all man, perfect, perfect EQ, no sin in him. Think about this, Jesus received pushback and persecution. If I was just more like Jesus, I, oh, I would feel, i get more pushback and persecution. There's no escaping it. If Jesus, the God-man, was perfect and was persecuted, certainly we will be will inevitably be challenged for being ourselves in Him. And you might hear words like this sometimes. You're such a great person. I don't know why you persist in this. If only you just kind of ditched this, it would be awesome. No wonder you can't get a date. Or no wonder you can't do this or you can't do that. No wonder you're upset or, or uncomfortable with it in this situation. Every time we're in a public setting and somebody brings up this issue and they ask you your opinion, you gently but forcefully tell them why you believe what you believe. And all conversation stops. And we're no longer invited. And you think, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, this is what we're supposed to do. In our life, we're called to bless our world. And this ministry of blessing our world has eternal consequences. And we have to be wise and discerning about what it looks like to bless the world. Sometimes blessing the world is to be silent and let people process their stuff. And we build credibility. We earn the right to be heard. 
And at some point, blessed in the world means saying what is true, talking about what we've experienced, what we understand. Loving people and caring for, for people no matter what they believe or don't believe, but at the same time, not just glossing over and, and, and covering what motivates us to do what we do why we do it. We don't love people and care for people transactionally. I'll do this if you do that. Uh, we're saying, I do this because this is what God is calling me to do. But I also want to give you a reason for the hope that is within me, if you're interested. See, Paul tells us that Jesus has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So be prepared to give a reason for the hope within you. Do it, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect. I cannot stand debates between Christians and non-Christians. Uh, it used to be a big deal that you'd bring in some authority to a university campus to have a debate. It's just a disaster. Because immediately when you call something a debate, it's, I've got to defend my position, you have to defend yours. And while you're talking, I'm rethinking my position, not listening and engaging with you. I love the, the way it's happening now. We've sponsored a bunch of these through the Veritas um, Forum at UCSD, where we bring in incredible scholars uh, from American and international universities who are followers of Jesus to, to have a conversation in public with people who would say, I, rep I, I represent myself as an atheist. Not to win an argument, but to have a conversation. So as we have these conversations, people are listening going, I had never thought about that before. If you haven't seen a conversation between Richard Dawkins and Francis Collins, just Google them. And, and, and your eyes will go wide open when you realize Richard Dawkins has nothing to say to Francis Collins. And he can't put him down like he does other speakers because Francis Collins is his peer. And Francis Collins is always gracious and yet clear to say, well, no, this is, but this is how I see it. This is what I think you have to say about science and its limits or science and its promise. We're going to have a conversation about this uh, this summer. So don't cave into evil, but confront it with the truth. Be humble, be wise, be discerning, and be gracious. You don't win an argument by beating people up. Don't intentionally provoke pushback or persecution, but don't be surprised when you encounter it. If you feel pushback and persecution, don't immediately say, what did I do wrong? You probably didn't do anything wrong. You're just being you in Christ. But if you find that you are offending somebody, and I've done this before, I've said offending people for sure, but I mean, in conversations, if somebody's all agitated, I'll say, have I said something to offend you? Well, no, 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 you don't offend me, but you keep saying these things that go to the Bible that that offends me. I'm like, okay, just checking. So your issue is with the Word of God, not with me. No, no, you're fine, but you believe these idiotic things. You see where the, the difference is? I want to say, am, am I offending you? Uh, yes, you've been offending me. You haven't listened to me. Okay, I, forgive me. I want to listen to you. But if, if, it's, if it's probably what it's going to be, it'll be, no, it's just that you believe things that I just can't accept. Why can't you accept them? What, what is it that... Now you're uncovering some stuff. See, what you don't want to be is face-to-face -face with people, always. Sometimes that's inevitable. You want to be shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with them, going, what do you see? When, when you're looking at the world, wh what do you see? What is your solution to this? What kinds of things do you think we could do differently or better? And all of a sudden, you open up all kinds of possibilities. And these kinds of conversations are usually very fruitful because the person says, I had never thought about Jesus as being real knowledge or real, real authority. I'll finish by saying this. 
There's one thing worse than persecution, and it's indifference. The one thing worse than persecution is indifference, starting with yours and mine. If we don't care, a lot of Christians pride themselves on not facing pushback or persecution. And you think of it as being some kind of a character strength, and I'm telling you, it's indifference, ignorance, based in fear or pride or laziness. I don't know. I don't like hyper-aggressive, attack-dog Christians. But at least there's something you can <laughs> have a conversation with them about to say, why do you think that's effective? Versus, why do you think your indifference is effective? Because if the culture eventually becomes indifferent toward us, what does that mean? The salt has lost its saltiness. It's good for nothing, is what Jesus said. Our life is a gift from God and a mission with meaning and purpose. That's what your life ultimately is. It's a mission with meaning and purpose. Fully integrated into everything you are and everything you do. It's not some weird add-on. It's just part of the fabric of your life. It's a mission. If you're indifferent toward it, you miss your own life. You minimize and negate your own life. You call into question God's suitability to be Lord and Savior. You dismiss it, uh, and therefore you miss it. But our gift is a gift from God, a mission with meaning and purpose. There's more to come. Jesus Christ lives, reigns, and will return. All will be well at the end of the day. But it, it, it's a really important thing for us to say, okay, uh, something is happening in me, and if I pay attention to it, it might transform me for sure, make my life better. But it also might put me in some temporary, momentary, perpetual conflict with other people. Having been a non-Christian, a non-believer, I'm, I'm prepared for that. I know how crazy it sounded to me, how annoying it was to me. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. You've always grown up in a Christian home. People who grow up in Christian homes tend to be more indifferent. But those of us who didn't grow up in Christian homes were on it because we're saying, this is, way, this is way better than you think it is. Tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I don't believe in that God either. Let's look at the God who reveals himself in Scripture. Focus on that as you walk with him. So Lord Jesus, that's our prayer, that you would kindle in us a fire based in your justice and righteousness and our heart for justice and righteousness in this world. Kindle in us, our hearts and our minds and our lives, a fire because of your Holy Spirit within us. That, Lord, you could teach us how to grow in knowledge and love. How to be people with significant emotional intelligence. Who are courageous and humble. Who are good listeners. Care about people right where they are and who they are. And Lord, prepare us then to face some of the inevitable pushback and persecution that comes from a world thrashing around in alienation and in sin and error pining, where we see truth and light in the world from people who don't believe in you. Lord, help us to affirm that and to say, this is so good because we see that you're already at work in their life. Help us to be part of that work that produces fruit in you. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. So as we wrap up worship, uh, this is a time to simply be still, focus on the Lord as the music is played, as you sing. Offer yourself to him. And then take a break. We have a, um, 
uh, a little mini brunch out there. And 11 o'clock, we're going to come back and have a few minutes of a really neat conversation looking at two themes today, uh, a five-minute video on justice and a five-minute video on the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a little conversation about that.
When you face pushback or persecution, listen carefully. What is God saying to you? What are people saying to you? Listen and wait on the Lord in that moment. I'm feeling pushback, persecution. Lord, what what do you want me to hear and see and understand? Second, learn how to ask questions. Not to put people on the spot, but invite them to share what's behind the feelings uh, and their point of view. Be a bridge builder. You have a protector. You don't need to worry about that. Be a bridge builder because your protector is leading you uh, into a world that needs him desperately. We can pray for you about anything before you leave here today. Go right out on the corner to that lovely prayer garden. There'll be people there who will say, how can I pray for you? And uh, they'll pray for you. Get something to eat. Uh, come back here at about 11.05, and we'll jump into some conversations. It's really fun. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine, Give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.